Thank you very much. How's everybody doing today? It's a little sleepy. Maybe we'll get a little more robust as we roll along. But like Mandy said, my, uh, my name is Gino Allison. I'm one of the pastors here. And I want to welcome you all to the South Suburban Vineyard Church. Special welcome to anybody who's visiting with us for the first time. See if you have new faces here this morning. And also welcome to anybody who is uh, listening to us through our website, through our podcast. You're also welcome to come and worship with us here on Sunday mornings. Well, we don't normally have a huge horse trough in the middle of our uh, in the middle of our auditorium. We have it here today because this is a special Sunday. This is a baptism Sunday. And so uh, years ago, we used to do baptisms at another church. We have to do it after service. We have to do it off-site. But recently, we went and picked up this horse trough from like a you know, farm supply store. And we've been having a good time ever since. And we've seen more and more people come to know Jesus, more and more people go public with their faith through baptism. And so we just sort of program it regularly on our calendar to offer a baptism class and to invite more and more people to become baptized. So we have some baptism candidates today. And basically what baptism simply is, is people making an active choice to go public with their faith. I mean, faith is a very personal thing, right? It's a decision that you make that's between you and God, but there's also a very public component to faith. And what baptism is, is people making a willful, conscious choice to go public with their faith, to, to, to have this public outward display of what's already happened in, on the inside of their hearts. And so basically we call it going public. And so baptism is also just a symbolic of a person dying to themselves in this watery grave and coming up a new person in Christ. And so we celebrate with those who are being baptized later. So after uh, the, service, the sermon, excuse me, and slightly during worship, we'll have uh, a small portion of time for our baptism candidates to just tell us briefly why they're being baptized. And as we continue with celebratory worship, they'll actually be baptized and we'll have a good time to, uh, an opportunity to celebrate with them during that. Here's something that we offer each and every time we do baptisms, though, because there's always somebody here that says, man, I want to be baptized. I didn't bring any extra clothes. I didn't plan this, but I've heard the gospel for the first time, or maybe the penny has just dropped for me. And while they're doing baptisms, I, I just would love to be baptized. Well, you can be baptized today if you've come here today. And at any point throughout the service, if you decide, hey, I want to be baptized. I want to go public with this. I want to make a firm decision to follow Jesus. Uh, you can do that. We bought some extra clothes. It doesn't matter. You know, whatever, whatever the case, we'll get you home dry. Right? Even if we have to wrap you in a bunch of those tiles and, you know, take you home, we'll get you home. So at any point throughout the service, Ramon Mayo just walked in right there, wave your hand. If you want to talk to him, he'll get you squared away and get you set up. Anybody that wants to be baptized today can be baptized. All right? So that's after the sermon today. Well, there's a Spanish story of a father and son who had become estranged. They got into a big fight with one another, and, you know, tempers flared. And at the end of this fight, things were so heated that the son stormed out the door, and he ran away. When his father cooled down, he realized what had happened, and he set out to find his son who had run away. Well, he couldn't find his son, and months and months passed. His father is just racked with worry, racked with regret, just wanting his boy to come home. In a last-ditch effort to connect with his son, he goes down to the local newspaper, puts a simple ad in the newspaper. The ad reads, Dear Paco, meet me in front of this newspaper office at noon on Saturday. All is forgiven. I love you, your father. Well, on Saturday, 800 dudes named Paco showed up <laughs> looking for love and acceptance 
from their father. Now, this story is probably not true, right? But it rings true because we know how hard it is sometimes for true forgiveness, uh, uh, how hard it is to come by, you know, true forgiveness to come by. And so many of us are in interpersonal relationships where we've experienced the pain and the loss of being at odds with somebody, desperately wanting uh, somebody to forgive us and to be reconciled with us. Many of us, particularly in the room this size, and probably a good chunk of us have uh, experienced or are currently experiencing uh, the sort of the blockage that builds up in your heart when you are withholding forgiveness from someone else. And so one of the greatest reliefs in life is if somebody says to you, hey, all is forgiven. Hey, don't worry about it. It's cool. We're square. One of the greatest reliefs in life is to be forgiven. And sometimes what we often overlook is one of the, also one of the greatest reliefs that we experience in life is when we release people from the things that they have done to us. We're talking about forgiveness this morning. And to forgive is simply defined as to stop feeling angry or resentful towards someone for an offense, for a flaw, for a mistake, to grant pardon uh, or remission of uh, a sin or a wrong or a grievance, Right? And so oftentimes we see forgiveness is coupled with this thing that we call mercy. And mercy is simply to show compassion or to give forgiveness towards somebody whom it is within your power to punish or harm. Not necessarily punish them in a physical way or in an actual way, but to punish them by withdrawing yourself from them. Mercy releases somebody from punishment that they are due. And so we say all the time in the vineyard that mercy is absolutely necessary when it comes to forgiveness, especially as it relates to uh, our being forgiven by God. We often say that mercy is the oil of the kingdom of God. That is to say, to extract mercy from the kingdom economy is to bring the kingdom of God to a screeching halt. To extract forgiveness and to extract mercy from the way that the kingdom works brings everything to a screeching halt. So forgiveness is necessary. Mercy is necessary. And I wish that it was easier to forgive. I wish that forgiveness was easier to come by, but each and every person sitting in this room knows that it's hard to forgive. It's hard to walk in true forgiveness. And for some of us, it's hard because we just don't know how. We haven't been taught. It's not really instinctive to forgive. And other, other than us, we know, the, we know what the Word of God says. We know how to forgive, but the wrong is just so egregious. The offense is just so blatant and so wrong, and the person is so unrepentant that it's just hard to forgive. And I would argue this morning that it's hard to forgive for many of us because we simply have a limited capacity for forgiveness. It's hard for many of us to forgive because we simply have a limited capacity to forgive. It's part of our fallen, broken human nature. Well, you're in luck because we're in the midst of a series that we've been calling Increasing Your Capacity. Increasing Your Capacity. We've just simply defined capacity as the maximum amount something can contain, the amount that something can produce. And we've been saying week after week that you will only pour out of you what is in you. We've been also saying that what is in us is limited by our capacity. We only can hold what our containers can can hold. And so if you have a limited capacity for love, you can only pour out so much love. If you have a shallow capacity for mercy or wisdom, you will only operate out of what your container can hold. And the same is true for 
forgiveness. But some of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we really say, maybe I'm doing okay with love, maybe I'm doing okay with wisdom, but this forgiveness thing is something that I really wish I had more of. This forgiveness thing is something that I really need to walk more in because it's having a profound effect on my sanity. It's having a profound effect on my relationships. It's having a profound effect on every area of our life where you're in luck because you're not stuck with who you are. You're not stuck with where you are. And as we look at Scripture, we see over and over that as people walk with Jesus, as they talk with him, as they learn of him, as they drink deep of his wisdom and his truth and his light, they increase their capacity to do things that they never thought that they could do. A couple weeks ago, we started this, uh, this series by talking about increasing our capacity for love. Last week, we talked about increasing our capacity for wisdom. This week, we talk about increasing our capacity for Forgiveness, or increasing our capacity to forgive. I want to look at this this morning. I want to look at a passage of Scripture in Matthew chapter 18. Would you turn there with me in your Bibles? There are Bibles on the edges of your row if you didn't bring one with you. Also, feel free to uh, follow along with us uh, with your phones or your tablets. I promise you that's okay here. Increasing your capacity to forgive. Matthew chapter 18. Before we look at this passage, let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this opportunity to stand before your people and to bring your word. Uh, Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to talk about something as significant, something as important as forgiveness. Lord, if forgiveness is the oil of the kingdom, if mercy is the oil of the kingdom, then we desperately need it to be right with you. We desperately need it to be right with one another. And so, Lord, for those of us who are struggling, Lord, I pray that you would go before us and make the crooked places straight. Anything, Lord, within us that would cause us to bristle at the truth, Lord, I pray that you would go before us and neutralize it. Father, may our hearts be soft landing places for your word this morning, for your truth. God, put power on these words that you've given me to speak. Move the preacher out of the way this morning so your truth and light might shine through. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're talking about forgiveness this morning, and we're looking at a passage of scripture in Matthew chapter 18. We're going to start at verse 21, and it reads, Then Peter came to him, Jesus, and asked, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? No, not seven times, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. He couldn't pay, so his master ordered that he be sold along with his wife, his children, and everything he owned to pay the debt. But the man fell down before his master and begged him, Please be patient with me, and I will pay it all. Then his master was filled with pity for him and released him and forgave his debt. But when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. He grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. His fellow servant fell down before him and begged for a little more time. Be patient with me and I will pay it, he pleaded, but his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put into prison until the debt could be paid in full. When some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. They went in to the king and told him everything that had happened. Then the king called in the man he had forgiven and said, You evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? 
Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. Verse 35, that's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. Sobering truth that we see in this passage. Lots of meat here, lots of stuff to wrestle with. And this passage opens with Peter. And Peter is asking Jesus a question, as they often asked him. Jesus was their teacher. Jesus was their mentor. Jesus was their discipler. And so they were always asking Jesus these very important questions about how to live life and how to get it right. The simple question that Peter asked Jesus is, how often do I forgive? See, the rabbis taught that three times was enough. Three times was plenty. But Jesus is sort of introducing some new math. Jesus is introducing some new math. Peter says, should I forgive seven times? I mean, that's four more times than what the rabbis are teaching. Surely, if I just bump it up a little bit, that's good enough. And so what Jesus says is he gives him this enormous number. He says 70 times seven. For those of you trying to do some quick math, just chill out. I got it. It's 490 times. So do you think that Jesus was saying, hey, when you get to 490, write the person off, You no longer have to forgive them. You can wash your hands of them. Absolutely not. Jesus is just saying, listen, don't try to keep track of it. Don't try to keep track of it. You you forgive an infinite amount of times. And so Jesus lays this on Peter, and no doubt the other disciples are listening. But he feels like further instruction is needed, and so he launches into this parable. Now, a parable is not necessarily a true story. But it's a sort of made-up story that's designed to help people, uh, you know, grasp a truth that perhaps is just difficult to grasp without the telling of this parable. So Jesus launches into this parable that we just read. And there's three main characters in this parable. There's the king, and the king represents God. And there's two servants. Uh, Now, this is a great passage, and I think it really gives us a very comprehensive look at what it means for God to forgive us but it also gives us a look at what God expects from us with regard to our forgiving people who have wronged us. My hope is that as we look at this passage today and we sort of drink deep from its truth, that we can increase our capacity to forgive. We can increase our capacity to forgive. So I'm going to give you three ways to increase your capacity to forgive, and I'm going to follow that with some very practical ways to walk that out. The very first, the very first step in this process, you want to increase your capacity to forgive, is you must consider God's mercy toward us. If you start any other place, the odds are you're going to get forgiveness wrong. Uh, If you start any other place, you're going to mishandle forgiveness. You're going to misappropriate it. You're going to be, you know, you're going to pick and choose who deserves it, who doesn't deserve it. You know, depending on which way the wind is blowing, you may or may not forgive. If you start any other place, the odds are you will get forgiveness very, very wrong. If you want to increase your capacity to forgive, you must first consider God's mercy toward us. Jesus says, therefore, the, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king, which represents God, who decided to bring his accounts up to date with his servants who had borrowed money from him. And so this king is like, listen, man, uh, you know, we're short. Uh, we we got to get a handle on the book. So he opens up the book and says, let me see, you know, what accounts I have open. Let me see what accounts I have open. He looked into the matter. 
And one of the things that the king discovered when he looked into the matter is that there was this one dude who owed him a lot of money. One of his subjects, one of his servants owed him a lot of money. So the king said, hey, get this guy in here, man. We need to have a chat with this guy because he owes me a lot of money. And so when he looks at the books, he discovers this huge debt. Verse 24 says, in the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. Now, millions of dollars is a lot of money now. Just imagine owing somebody millions of dollars uh, in, the, in, in, the, in, the, in the first century. I mean, that's, that's an enormous debt, millions of dollars. And I'm thinking, how did you get in... You know, how did you get into debt millions of dollars in the first century? I mean, the, the scriptures doesn't tell us. It's not likely that this guy borrowed a million dollars. What's likely is something happened where he owed something, couldn't pay it. And some of us know how compounding interests work, right? You can't pay it. Maybe you pay the minimum payment, but the thing gets larger and you're paying interest on the larger thing and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And suddenly the bills come and you just stick them in a drawer because you don't even want to look at it anymore because it's just so out of reach. It's likely the case that this just, debt just sort of grew over and over a period of time, and now the chickens have come home to roost, and now the king says, hey, you owe me this money. This isn't a business partner of the king. This is just a regular dude. This is just a servant of the king. Now, it's important to note that in the first century, in the Bible times, like, you know, debt was a big deal. We've grown insensitive to debt here in the 21st century because we've got all these things we can do. We can ignore it. We can quick file for bankruptcy. We can, you know, stash assets and do all the sorts of things. Well, that wasn't really how it worked in the first century. You couldn't just get another credit card and, like, transfer the balance to that. It, it didn't work that way. It didn't work that way. The lender had the legal right to have the borrower seized, force his or her family into working until the debt was paid off, and often with a debt this size, you would never stop being a slave. You would not, never be in debt. Your whole family would become the property of the person that you owed. This usually involved a complete liquidation of assets. You'd have to sell your land, your livestock, your valuables. You'd probably have to tap the resources of relatives, or you'd just be relegated to a life in prison or a life as an indentured servant. It's very different than how we view debt these days, needless to say, this guy was in very, very deep. And so as the king discovers that this guy doesn't have money to pay it, the king says, here's your punishment. Verse 25, he couldn't pay, so his master ordered that he be sold along with his wife, his children, and everything he owed to pay the debt. Hey, you can't pay? Go to jail. Can't pay? I'm taking your family, Right? But shortly after this, verse 26 uh, shows us that this man appeals to this king. If there's any ounce of mercy within you, if there's any sense of leniency within you, king, I appeal to it at this moment, moment, verse 26. But the man fell down before his master and begged him, please be patient with me. Now, this is a lot of patience. This is a multi-million dollar debt in the first century. Be patient with me and I will pay it all. Then his master was filled with pity for him and he released him and forgave him his debt. Now that was really easy, wasn't it? Multi-million dollar debt. Just seconds before this guy pleads, he's been sentenced to life in prison. His family and kids have been ordered to be snatched up. And his just simple appeal for more time, simple appeal for mercy. And the master says, okay, millions of dollars. Okay, fine. You're free to go. 
I told you earlier that the master is God. I told you earlier that the servant is us. And so this parable, among other things, gives us a very clear picture of the gospel, a clear clear picture of the good news. John 3, uh, all throughout the gospels, um, we hear about how good this news is. Anybody who would believe on Jesus could have eternal life. doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter what you've done. You don't have to clean yourself up first. You don't have to be a great person. You don't have to be an awesome person. Romans 5, 8 says, while we were yet in our sin, Christ died for us when we owed him more than we could ever pay. In fact, when the price for our sin was death and destruction, eternal separation from God, the king stepped in and says, I know you owe me a lot. I know you'll never be able to pay it. I know I have the the power and the, the right to crush you like a bug, but instead I offer you pardon. I offer you forgiveness. This is the message of the gospel. And then in a room this size, there might be people who, here who've never heard that message before or never heard that message with the clearness of mind and sobriety of thought. And so I'd say, say to you again, doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter what you've done, if you will have Christ, Christ will have you. Doesn't matter what you've done last night, doesn't matter what your past is, if you will have Christ, he will have you. Though your debt is huge, he pardons you. He wipes the slate clean. He forgives you. So the first part of this parish, we, we see God. We see this merciful king, the merciful king. He pardons, he forgives, he releases the debtor out of his debt. And so if we want to increase our capacity for forgiveness, we must first consider God's mercy, his faithfulness, his love toward us. We must first consider his mercy, his goodness, his faithfulness, his forgiveness toward us. And so once we start there, we can move to step two. We can forgive as God forgives. When we talked about love a couple of weeks ago, we said, listen, it's hard to love people who are unlovable. It's hard to love people who are hard to love, difficult people, unless, of course, you realize that you are somebody's difficult person. I always hear people talking to me about how weird somebody is or how, you know, funny somebody is or how unlikable somebody is. I said, don't you know that you are somebody's weird friend? <laughs> they haven't told you yet, but somebody's deciding whether or not they come to that party, uh, you know, based on whether or not they see your name on the RSVP list. You're somebody's weird friend. You're somebody's awkward friend. You're somebody's friend that talks too much. And so... <laughs> You know, if you've got some good friends, they might pull you aside and tell you. But oftentimes, you just go, you don't even know, right? That you're that weird friend, right? But it's, it's helpful for us to understand that we're that person that's in need of forgiveness. We're that person who had this enormous debt that we could n- never, ever pay. And God, just like that, he just forgave. And so what God charges us to do is to forgive as he has forgiven us. If you want to increase your capacity to love, love as God loves. If you want to increase your capacity to forgive, you must forgive as God forgives. We've discussed the merciful king, and now we have to discuss the unmerciful servant because he's going to learn this lesson the hard way. The story highlights our natural reactions to being wronged, and our natural response to being wrong is to what? To get even to get even. 
right? And so I think this is sort of a byproduct of our God-given sense of justice, right, that has just sort of gone overboard. I think God has just put in, pl- in all of us a, a, a sense of justice, a sense of fairness, a sense of right and wrong. You don't believe me? Find a two-year-old. No, find two two-year-olds. Sit them down at the table. Take three Skittles and give it to one two-year-old. And take five Skittles and give it to the other uh, two-year-old and just watch what happens. Now, depending on the temperament, somebody might get slapped. Something might get taken, but what might happen is somebody might go, hey, what? Their sense of fairness has been disrupted, right? Now, don't let that one two-year-old take something from the other two-year-old. Hey, that's not fair. They will protest. They might act out, right? Who taught them that they need to respond to being wrong that way? Who taught them that they need to make a wrong right and fix it? Who taught them that they have to hold something against someone else? Nobody needs to teach you that. You come with that. And I think that that's God's sense of justice that is already within us. But it gets corrupted. It gets crazy. It goes overboard, and it needs to be checked. A perfect example is this guy. He's been forgiven multi-million dollar debt. The scripture tells us what happens. When this man left the king, he probably didn't even have a breakfast. He just walked out. He went immediately to find a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. He grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. His fellow servants fell before him and begged for a little more time. Be patient with me and I will pay it. He pleaded. But his creditor would not wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. On the heels of being forgiven a multi-million dollar debt, this guy decides to check his books, much like the king. Hey, let me see what's out there. As he surveys his, his accounts, he discovers that somebody owes him money. Now, what's interesting is you think after being forgiven of this enormous debt, he would be like, let me, look, let me look at my books and let me relieve somebody of the debt that they owe me. My day has been infinitely made. Let me go make somebody else's day. Was he looking for somebody to pardon? Was he looking for somebody to deliver some good news to? No, he was looking for somebody that would pay, them, pay him back what he was owed. He was looking for somebody who owed him a few thousand dollars. And some of you say now, a few thousand dollars, especially in the first first century, that's a lot of money. And it is a lot of money. But when you put a million dollars and you put a thousand dollars on the scale, I mean, it just, it's peanuts. Just moments ago, you were millions of dollars in the red. And that few thousand dollars could do nothing to even, could even put a dent in what you owed. And here you are now in the black, and what, what your impulse is, what your instinct is, is to go after somebody who owes you something. This highlights our instinct to get even, even in the face of great forgiveness. And before we pick up stones to stone this guy, we need to realize that this is a mirror. Like Jesus is putting up a mirror in front of us. He's saying, that's you. That's you. You've been forgiven millions of dollars. You've been forgiven an enormous debt. And yet you hold things that by, are, are by comparison very small in scale, very small in comparison to what I've forgiven you. 
You say, Lord, you, you just don't know this person did X, Y, and Z. Jesus said, I know, that's a doozy. I, I know. And in an earthly sense, uh, you have every right. But when you zoom out and you look at this thing cosmically, you look at this thing in the scope of forgiveness and salvation and the price that was paid on Calvary for your sin, your debt that you could never pay on your own, Jesus says, how dare you hold someone else hostage? How dare you go and grab another person by the throat and demand that they pay you and throw them and their families into a debtor's prison when I've forgiven you so much? So what should he have done? He should have, been, he should have forgiven as he'd been forgiven. He should have pardoned as he had been pardoned. I see people all the time withholding forgiveness, withholding consider, consideration, withholding the, withholding the benefit of the doubt uh, from others who have wronged them or uh, from others who are difficult to love. And some of these people, it's really puzzling. Because what I want to say is, do you know how hard it is to be your friend? You know how hard it is to love you with all of your quirks and all your issues and all of your inconsistencies and all, you know what it costs to be your friend? How dare you withhold forgiveness? How dare you withhold the benefit of that? How dare you withhold kingdom light and love because somebody's difficult? This is the same thing God looks at us and says, listen, you're in no position to walk in unforgiveness. You're in no position because... Forgiveness is expected. We play this story out. We roll this thing out. We see the king, he gets upset with this guy because the king expected that this guy would clear his books in light of such a debt that had been forgiven of him. Word gets back to the king, and the king deals with this, and we move toward the third and final way to increase our capacity to forgive, and that is that we need to consider the cost of unforgiveness. Consider the cost of unforgiveness. First, we considered God's mercy toward us. Second, we considered the fact that we need to love and forgive as God has forgiven us. But I think it's helpful and necessary for us to consider just what it costs to walk in unforgiveness. See, unforgiveness is costly, especially in this story. When the king finds out that this guy had been unmerciful, word gets back to him, and the king calls this guy in. He said, you evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. Now, needless to say, this guy is never getting out of prison owing this debt. And so what happened is when he failed to forgive somebody of their debt, the king reinstated his debt. And so all of a sudden we see that Unforgiveness is costly. The king said, you evil servant. And you're profoundly immoral, wicked, depraved. And trust me, you don't want God calling you evil. And so maybe prior to today, we didn't put unforgiveness in the evil category. Maybe mass shooters. Maybe terrorists. Maybe pedophiles. We can think of a lot of despicable things, but maybe before today, we didn't consider unforgiveness despicable. We didn't consider it evil. But the master calls it evil. Now notice what the king doesn't say. The king said, didn't say, hey, you had no right to go to that guy. He didn't say that. He said, you brought this guy up on false charges. The king never said that. 
The king never said, you unjustly manipulated the law for your advantage. Shame on you. The king never said that this guy was well within his rights to go and demand that this debt would be paid in a very natural sense. But in light of what he'd been forgiven, the king considered this spiritually criminal. Spiritually criminal. And the king poses this question. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I have had mercy on you? So in response to this unmerciful servant, the king heaps all of that debt back on this guy and puts him in prison where he can't even really work toward paying the debt. He puts all of this stuff back on this guy. That is to say that if you fail to extend mercy and forgiveness and a comprehensive pardon, then word will get back to me and I will reinstate your debt. I will reinstate the punishment and no pardon will be given. The cost of unforgiveness is great. And so let's just tick off three things here. What, is the co- what are the costs of unforgiveness? Well, unforgiveness will cost you your forgiveness. Unforgiveness will cost you your forgiveness. And listen, I, I can't afford to not have my sins forgiven. I can't afford to do anything that will, that will forfeit my opportunity to receive a complete pardon from my creator and my king. I, I can't put myself in that position. But all throughout Scripture, we see that if you do not forgive, you will not be forgiven. If you fail to release people from the debt that they owe you, you will not be forgiven. Jesus says in Matthew 5, verses 23, if you're worshiping at the altar, if you're bringing a sacrifice, and as you're bringing a sacrifice, you remember that somebody has something against you, then he says, leave your gift on the altar, leave your worship, leave your sacrifice, just Put it on hold and go make it right with that person. Go straighten it out. And so what Jesus is saying, in essence, is that unforgiveness will will really hinder your worship. Uh, Unforgiveness will really complicate and come between you and your devotion and worship to God. He said, this thing is so important that I want you to do this before you worship. Forgiveness is so important. Having clean, settled accounts is more important to me than you bringing a sacrifice of worship, you bringing a sacrifice of praise. The Lord says, listen, I can't even really hear your praises right now. I can't even entertain what you're saying right now because I know you have some open accounts, some things that you haven't settled. Go get it right. Because tied up in this is our own forgiveness, our own pardon. And if you fail to walk in forgiveness, to walk in love, to pardon those who have wronged you, the Lord says very explicitly that he simply will not forgive you. So one of the costs of unforgiveness is forgiveness yourself. The second cost of unforgiveness is freedom. 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 I've heard it said that unforgiveness and bitterness is like ingesting poison and waiting for the person that you're angry with to be affected by the poison and to die. Unforgiveness puts you in a prison. If the person cares about the fact that you're upset with them, then maybe they're bound by that too. But oftentimes people are, are, are you know, they don't even know that they've wronged you. There are people who are in in heaven, people who have long gone, that you, you still are reeling from unforgiveness, and the person doesn't have a clue. They're dead. They're like... 
you know, I don't know, walking on the streets of gold. They have no idea. And so what is the price that you've paid for unforgiveness? Well, you put yourself in a prison. You're angry. You're bitter. You can't see that person happy and not just have your blood start boiling. And so there's a great cost to unforgiveness is that you, you are not free. You're not free to live and you're not free to love. You're in a prison of unforgiveness. So we see the cost of unforgiveness is your forgiveness, is your freedom. And finally, cost of unforgiveness is your peace. Your peace. You're not going to have any peace if you're not walking in freedom. You're not going to walking and be walking in any peace if you have all these open accounts and you're just waiting for a piano to drop on the head of the person who has wronged you. That's a miserable existence. And I see it spilling out. You think, you, you think you're doing a good job of having it under wraps. You, you think it doesn't spill out in your conversation. You think it doesn't spill out in social media. You think it doesn't impact how you're loving and serving and interacting with people all over you, uh, around you. It does. It does. Because unforgiveness has you walking in it without peace, has you living without peace, have you serving God without peace, relating to others without peace, leading your small group without peace, working your job and raising your kids without peace. Unforgiveness is costly. It's costly. And so some of you say, preacher, okay, you've convinced me. I need to deal with my unforgiveness. And some of you, two, three people, major instances in your life have come to mind. You say, okay, what do I do? How do I walk this out? How do I walk this out? Let's get real practical with this. If the goal is comprehensive forgiveness from your heart as it relates to your grievances and debts, people that owe you, uh, this formula that, sort of, that this passage gives us in terms of how we walk this out, for, for me, is fairly simple. And the first thing we do to walk this out is we check the books. We check the books. In other words, we, we consciously think, we consciously ask ourselves, what accounts are still open? What accounts are still open? Who, who's wrong to me? Like, and sometimes, you know, the major ones are right before you, but when you sit down and think about it, maybe get a pen and paper, you come up with a whole list of people that you need to release, a whole list of people that you need to forgive. And I've just found it necessary that I just got to take inventory. I got to check the books. I got to see which accounts are open so that I have to deal with it. And some of you, as you check your accounts, as you check the books, you will go, man, my father was a lousy father. He's a lousy father, and he, he totally screwed up my life. That's hard to say. But some of you, if you were checking the books, you would just say, man, he's totally screwed up my life. You might say, my mother was a terrible mother, and her cumulative, the cumulative effect of her negativity, her pessimism, uh, terrible words spoken toward me, uh, didn't ever feel protected by this woman. The cumulative effect of that just really set me up to not be very well adjusted in my adult life to look for love in all the wrong places, to, to hate myself. My mom really, really let me down. You might point to a point in your childhood where you were taken advantage of by somebody you trusted. And when you sit down and you open the books, you go, man, I really have something against this person. I really have deep, deep issues with this person. I haven't released them. This is an open account. 
You might have some issues against your friend who weren't there for you at a time when you desperately needed them. And when you think about it, you go, you know, I, I still have an issue with them. There's this thing cooking under the surface that really puts me at odds with this person. Some of you might say, my husband or my wife has been unfaithful to me. I stayed with them, but it's destroyed our life. It's never been the same. And if I'm honest, I got issues with that that I need to deal with. It calls for a comprehensive checking of the books. It's a painful process, but it's necessary. So we check for any open accounts. The second thing we do as we walk this house is that, is that we process the punishment. Like, we process the punishment. What, would, what do I feel like it would be necessary to get even with this person? What would I like to happen as a result of what they've done that I feel would grant me some peace, grant me some sense of justice? And some of you would say, I just hope that person would just burn in hell for what they did to me. I, I just hope that they would burn in hell for that. Or you might say, I just want somebody to do to them what they did to me. I want them to experience what I had to experience. I want somebody to do to their kids what they did to my kids. I want them to feel my pain. The truth is, as you process that with God's help, you will probably discover that none of that stuff will take away the pain that you feel. No sense of vigilante justice, no eye for eye justice will ever offset or make it, make it right. Talk to people who have been wronged and the, 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 the criminal has gone to the electric chair or have been you know, equally punished for the life that they took or the lives that they destroyed. Ask them if they steal, if they got some closure with that. Ask them if it took away the pain. Ask them if they took matters into their own hands and tried to get some justice, if, if it took away the issues that they experienced. If forgiveness came as a result of them getting even, they'll probably tell you no. They'll probably tell you no. But I found that it's helpful to process, what do you think would make this right? What do you think this would make this right? And shortly after you process the punishment, I think it's necessary to activate forgiveness to activate forgiveness, to release the person from what they've done to you. Because unforgiveness is basically you, you're still maintaining the right to get even. You're still maintaining this hope, this desire that something would happen to this person, something would befall them that would somehow make this right. And what forgiveness does is it says, listen, I know you owe me, I know you wronged me, but I release you from that. I release you from that. I know what you owe me, but God has shown me mercy, and with his help, I turn you loose. I forgive you. I release you from any and all debts so you and I can go free. Freedom from this and sort of forgiveness is something that you actually have to activate. You don't stumble into forgiveness. You don't trip and fall into it. You don't go outside and the day is sunny. You go, this is a really nice day. I think I'll forgive today. It doesn't work that way at all. It has to be a willful choice. You have to lean into this thing. You have to engage this thing. It's dirty work. It's hard work. But it's necessary. And you have to ask God, God, help me with this. This is tough. Help me with this. So you open the books and check the books. You process the payment. You activate forgiveness. And the final step is to move on. I know that sounds, I know that sounds callous. I know that sounds dismissive, but trust me, it's not. It's not. It's not. 
And so for some of you, to, to tr- you truly know when you've walked in forgiveness, that doesn't mean it doesn't hurt anymore. It doesn't mean that when you think about it, sometimes you, you, you get sad. But to move on simply means you release that person and you're able to walk out of life with Jesus and walk out of life with people without being in the prison, without having your peace destroyed, right? But get this, sometimes moving on means walking in wisdom, and you might have to put some space in between you and the person who is a serial offender. And so move on isn't just this sort of cheap thing to say, hey, get over it. Move on and say, practically, what does that look like for you to forgive this person and make some adjustments so that you can not only have peace, but maintain that peace and walk in that peace. There's some, some people in my life that I've had to say, listen, I can love you better from afar. I like you more when we're talking on Facebook rather than face-to-face. My life works better if you're not in my immediate proximity. Because I've changed, but I've seen you haven't. <laughs> You know, I've released you, but I've seen that you're still up to your old chip tricks, and I might just have to limit your access to me so that we won't have to do this all over again. You understand what I'm saying? And so this move on is just some flippant thing. Hey, get over it. This is like practically what, is it, what does it look like for you to move on, for you to walk out your life with Jesus and walk out your life with that other person and release them from the things that they have done to you. Listen, if you don't walk in forgiveness, you will have a miserable life. We've said it week after week that life is hard for somebody who can't love right. Life is hard for you if you don't have wisdom. Life is hard for you if you're a fool. Life is especially hard for those who cannot and those who will not forgive. And in a room this size, there's just got to be all sorts of open accounts. And some of you have probably just been jotting them down as I speak. And so you will not live the good life. You will not walk in the fullness and the freedom of what God has for you if you don't actively seek to increase your capacity to forgive. Worship team, you can come up as I close. And so my question to you is, where, where are you today with this? Where are you today with this? And some of you, you come here and you worship, and some of you, you're real active, and you're great Christians, but you've got all these people that you haven't released, all these accounts that are still open. And so I think the word of the Lord for us today is simple. When you consider how much you've been forgiven, you simply cannot hold others in the prison of unforgiveness. The word of the Lord is simple today. When you consider how much you've been forgiven, you simply cannot, as a follower of Jesus, hold people in a debtor's prison of unforgiveness. And so the challenge for each and every one of us is to let God do a work in our hearts as it relates to unforgiveness so that we can be free and so that others can be free as well. Let me pray first. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for... uh, this is message of forgiveness. Lord, it's something that even I myself have to wrestle with as I stand here before you and your people today. There are accounts that I have open, things that I have tried to ignore and not deal with, Lord, but I, I feel convicted by your truth and by your word today. And so, Lord, I pray that that collective conviction, not condemnation, but conviction would just flood through our hearts, 
that, Lord, that you would stir up the things that, that need to be dealt with in our heart, Lord, that you would bring to our remembrance those accounts that are still open. And, Lord, as we consider what you've done for us, the price that you've paid for us, the pardon that you've granted us, Lord, may it just be impossible for us to walk in unforgiveness. Lord, I pray specifically for those this morning who have been egregiously wronged. Those who are dealing with things that will forever impact their life. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would fill them this morning and they would walk alongside you and be able to walk in forgiveness. Lord, increase our capacity to forgive and to love that we might love and we might forgive as you have forgiven us. Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.